through. That's great. Could we have the passage up? We'll do a little reading first. So this is the um, second book of John, second epistle of John. And it says, The elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It, was given, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as, father, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, well, it's wonderful to be here. So wonderful to see so many of you here. And it's a pleasure to be speaking to you this morning. Um, next slide, please, if we could uh, bring up um, the first one. Almost. So I was in a co-op store once, and um, uh, there was a... Uh, I saw this bizarre label on a bottle, and hopefully we'll be able to see it soon. I know there's sometimes a little bit... It can get a little tricky when you're transferring over to the sermon slide, so give it a few more moments. But um, if not, I will simply tell you how ridiculous this label was. Right, so it said, olive oil. Olive oil composed of refined olive oils and virgin olive oils. Oils comprising exclusively olive oils have undergone refining and oils obtained directly from olives. Produce of the EU. Uh, that was, the, type, that was the, like, the name of the product. It wasn't like you know, a, a product description. That's what they called it. That was the name of the product. It was ridiculous. I want to know the backstory behind that label. Did the, did, the, did the legal guy at co-op burst in to a board meeting and be like, guys, guys, the, the olive oil, it, it's not specific enough. I've got a bit way more detail in that thing. It's got a, its lawsuit written all over it. You know, is that what happened? I, I'd, I'd love to know. Or maybe it was just the label guy at, at the co-op. You know, he was approaching retirement and was sort of like... Um, no, what I put on the, no, what I put on the labels. Uh, it's going out like that. It's a joke, but it, I, I guess we just let it go. I want to know. I want to know what the origin story of that label was. But anyway, um, as ridiculous as the label was, there can be no doubt. There can be no doubt about what the message of the label was. I think, I think, the label was about olives and oil. Probably, you know, and oils obtained by olives, of course. Now, it's hard to come away from that label not having got that message, right? It's very hard not to. Uh, but as ridiculous as that label is, um, it, it reminded me a little bit of the 60s. Here we go. Um, can we have that uh, next one up? There we go. 
See, I wasn't making it up. It's real, okay? <laughs> um, it reminded me a little bit of the 63rd book of the Bible, the second book of John, which we're looking at today. Uh, next slide, please. It's so short that you can fit it on a single sermon slide. You know, if, you, if, it, if the book of Romans was like a doctoral thesis, this is more like a postcard in a way. Um, it probably was a postcard. You know, it's that short. Um, the entire thing could be put on a single sermon slide. Now, during the reading, I wonder if you noticed that the words love and truth occur quite a lot. Um, it, it stands out. It comes across quite clunky when you're reading it, like, like I was just there. Um, but uh, so, so you have to ask, you know, well, what's this passage about? It's probably about, like our olive oil label, it's hard to come away with a message other than it's about love and the truth. And so if you want to come away today with one message, it's that. It's that we need to walk in both love and the truth. Walk in love, walk in the truth. Now, it's, thank you very much, uh, it's common for one of those to appeal more than the other. Um, for some of us. Some people are naturally empathetic, and the call to love others, service, hospitality, empathy, that resonates with them powerfully. Others might see themselves more cerebral, and the call to seek and guard truth uh, resonates more with them. So facts, argument, doctrine, theology, that sort of thing excites them. And I wonder which one resonates with you more. Um, If I confess, I'd probably say the latter one, the cerebral thing relates to me more, but I aspire more to the, the first one. Um, and yet, in Second in John, we are called to walk in both love and the truth. Love without truth can deteriorate into mere sentimentality. And truth without love can just be obnoxious. We must walk in both. So let's break it down and have a look at the first one first. Walk in love. How can we walk in love? Oh, we won't bring that one up yet, just, just yet. Um, how can we walk in love? Um, years ago, uh, I was at New Wine, which is a Christian conference, and it was there that I heard the worst talk ever, objectively. No, I, <laughs> maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but it, anyway, alarm bells rang when, uh, when the guy, when the speaker in front of 4,000 people stood up and said, oh, he's from New Zealand, I'm not going to talk about the passage per se, but I'm just going to tell a story. And I was just thinking, oh, okay. Um, and then he, he basically vented for an hour about all of his pain and struggles he's had as, as a pastor in his ministry. And he seemed to berate the audience for, uh, for, for not, struggling and, 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 uh, and not struggling for Jesus like he did. And at one point he said, Jesus is like barbed wire. When you hold on to him, he cuts into you. And it was... I don't think he's anything like that. But you could tell he had a lot of wounds. He had a lot of wounds, and he was sort of processing them there in front of 4,000 people. Um, And uh, at the end, he invited people to come forward and and to commit themselves to loving others more. And lots of people did come forward. But I did wonder, if the impulse to love others is based on guilt and being bullied by a guy with a microphone, how long is that going to last? Is it going to last to the Monday? I mean, is it really? So how do we walk in love? I suggest not like that. Not like that. If we want to walk in love, we must first ask not how, but why. Why walk in love? And next slide, please. John's first epistle gives a beautiful, succinct answer to that. He says, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4:19. The more people I meet, the more I search my own heart, the more I realize that the degree to which we love others is linked to the degree to which we know we are loved. The degree to which we love others is linked to the degree to which we know we are loved. 
Knowing we are loved deep down in our hearts is not, in our hearts as well as our head, is something I know that many people struggle with. Saying, God loves me, isn't obvious to some people, to many people. For some, their parents, particularly their fathers, uh, have come up short, and so they find it hard to know God as their loving father when, they're knowing, when they have not known a loving earthly father. Perhaps you're troubled by the bad things that you've done and are tempted to think God's love can't sink that low. For others, life has just been so hard with prolonged suffering that they find it hard to reconcile their experience, that experience with the idea that God loves them deeply. Maybe unanswered prayer is a big elephant in the room. You've laid the yearnings of your heart before God for healing, for provision, for breakthrough, for relationships, and you've been met with silence. We need to be real and authentic about this and not shy away from, from hard questions. And if that's an issue for you, I, I cannot recommend enough uh, a book called God on Mute by Pete Gregg. Um, I hoped to have grabbed it from the, Bible, uh, from the library just before and be able to wave it for you. But I think someone's borrowed it, which is good because it is a very good book. So um, it's called God on Mute by Pete Gregg. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, Pete Gregg, uh, he oversaw the 24-7 prayer ministry. He saw lots of healings and miracles. But then one day, his wife got a brain tumor and was very sick. And he wrote this book wrestling with the reality of unanswered prayer and, and how he, he encountered God's love even there. And that journey led him to the cross. If you want to see God's love at work, a great place to start is the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the judgment we all deserve for our moral wrongdoing, which separated us from union with God. And he bore all that judgment on himself and dealt with it decisively and completely. Uh, next slide, please. Um, there's a poem that puts it this way. Tread the blood-soaked gravel of Calvary. Gaze up at the Christ writhing on a tree. Hands that created and heal gnarl in pain. The sovereign is mocked. God himself is slain. Beyond the cross and its physical pain, unfolding in the spiritual domain, all judgment for sin amassed since the fall was discharged upon him once and for all. No one has ever loved you like this. No one has gone down so deep an abyss to sweep you up to such infinite height to offer themselves as your soul's delight. I wonder, do you know this? Do you know this? Does it go marrow deep into your soul? Jesus died for the world, but yes, but he died for you individually, specifically too, personally. Look at the interactions Jesus has uh, with people on the cross. The thief on the cross next to him uh, he, 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 he faces Jesus and he says, he turns towards Jesus and says in his very dying breaths, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, tomorrow you will be with me in paradise. The thief didn't exactly say a kind of exhaustive confession of faith, but, but Jesus' omniscient eyes could see into his soul and he, could, he, could, he knew him better than he knew himself and he could see where his heart was going. And he said, you will be with me in paradise. That's how personal Jesus' love was for him. And whilst you're thinking about that, think about this too. Watching over Jesus' crucifixion was a crowd of thugs and fanatics who were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, the story is so familiar to us, perhaps, um, and we've seen it in films and things, that, that it loses its, its impact. What exactly are they saying? They are saying, we don't just want Jesus to die, we want him to suffer. We wanted it to take a long time for him to die. They wanted him to be stripped naked and humiliated for everyone to see. And their injustice being achieved, they didn't just go home. 
they hung around and they mocked him and they continued to heap pain upon him as he agonizingly lost his battle to keep breathing. And what did Jesus say to people like that? What did he say to them? He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How could he say such a thing? How, literally, how could he say something like that? How could the perpetrators of deicide be forgiven? It's because Jesus was offering to atone for and absorb the punishment deserving for such a heinous cry on himself at that very moment. It was almost as if by saying, Father, forgive them, Jesus was saying, Father, what they're doing is horrendous, but I want to pay for it right now. I want to take it on myself and digest the hell that they deserve right now for them so that they can be free. That's what he was doing. That is incredible. Never, never has there been love or grace like this. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ indeed. And Jesus loved Jesus loved the thief next to him on the cross. He knew him better than he knew himself and reassured him personally of his salvation. If he knew and loved that thief like that, he knows and loves you too. Jesus knew just how to win you over. And he worked, he can work in the circumstance of the world to bring you to himself and to woo you over to himself. And Jesus even loved his torturers, offering to pay for their sin right there and then. Never ever think that you have sunk so low as, to, as not to receive Christ's love. If his love reached out even to them that were killing him and torturing them, then no matter what you've done, his love will surely cover you too. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. It's not a placard-waving cliche, as it often is. It's everything. It's the central truth of the Christian faith. Jesus really, really, personally, specifically, individually loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Now, I could go on. Next slide, please. I could go on. I've only skimmed the surface of God's love as revealed in one way in the cross. I haven't even mentioned God's love at work timelessly through the persons of the Trinity, between the persons of the Trinity, God's love in creation, in his faithfulness to Israel, in the incarnation, in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the infilling of the Holy Spirit, in the spread of the church, in the hope of the kingdom come and the kingdom to come, our adoption as royal sons and daughters of the Most High God, and on and on and on. It would take an eternity. It will take an eternity for us to uncover it all. Suffice to say, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Ephesians 3.18. Amen? Amen. And this is love. And this is love. If, you've, if, if you have received it, this will blossom in you and overflow with gratitude to others. What we looked at there in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. We don't love others to be accepted by God. We love because we are accepted already. We don't love others to be accepted by God. We love because we are accepted. A big burly Irish friend of mine, Adrian, um, he helps run a, 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 it's called the Healing Rooms Ministry here in Bristol. And years ago, he realized that he was exhausted and he was searching himself as to why. And he realized that he, he didn't really know that he was loved. He didn't really know he was loved. And so he actually stepped back from ministry. He withdrew from ministry for a time and just spent some quality time with the Lord until he received a deep reassurance that he was loved by God. And having received that, he went back into ministry, more energized and powerful than ever before. And as he likes to say, learn to live loved. Learn to live loved. 
Um, I butchered that accent. I'm very sorry. Now, um, <laughs> I've done New Zealand and I butchered the New Zealand and the Irish. So there we go. Um, and uh, walking in that love can manifest in innumerable, innumerable ways. It can manifest in flagship ways, we might say. So uh, being involved in our refugee uh, help program, the Wild Goose Homeless Cafe, serving on rotors and worship teams and, and youth work teams. But more often than not, more often than not, it is simply everyday acts of spirit-prompted kindness that inch by inch, frame by frame, restore hope to a fallen world. So we walk in love driven by Jesus' love for us. But that truth there, Jesus' Jesus's love for us, that truth is a precious truth that must be defended. If we lose that, we lose everything. If we lose that truth, we cut the oxygen supply that feeds our own love for others. And so we lose that too. And so, as we said before, truth and love go together. We must walk in both. So, this now seamlessly segues into the second part. Next slide, please. Into the second part, walk in the truth. So, John appeals to the church he's writing to to walk in the truth by rejecting false teaching. Now, that is countercultural today. To us modern Westerners, to reject something as false is arrogant and mean. It runs against a society that values inclusivity above everything, universally. Rather, and, um, and it doesn't sit easily with us. And John describes those who teach false teaching as deceivers and antichrist in verse 7. He describes these false teachers as not having God in verse 9. So in other words, this is a very heavy grade rebuke of false teachers. Their teaching was an exit door away from God, away from God's love, just as we've seen there, rather than leading people to him. But some false teachers have noble t do have noble motives. Verse 9 describes the false teachers as running ahead. Running ahead could imply that the, these teachers wanted to advance or to innovate or to explore. In many cases, false teachers want the church to be more popular than it is by uh, assimilating to the culture or the moral norms of the time. Sometimes false teachers are trying to help. It's not coming from a place of, uh, of, of you know, animosity or bitterness. It's, they're trying to help. I listened to an interview with, a, with an ex-megachurch pastor from America a few years ago who had rejected really key core doctrines um, of, of Christianity. And when he was questioned by the interviewer on his reasoning for all this, and he was struggling to justify it either by scripture or just plain reason, he eventually had to admit, look, 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 I... I am a pastor at the end of the day, and, and pastors tell good stories. In other words, in pursuing church growth, he deprioritized whether the teaching was actually coming from Scripture. The fact is, it didn't matter anymore to him. What mattered was telling good stories. What mattered was popularity, you know, hoping that that would bring church growth. Verse 7 says that these false teachers were teaching that Jesus hadn't really come in the flesh. And John may be referring here to an early Christian heresy called Docetism, which taught that Jesus wasn't a real human being, but was perhaps a, a kind of ghost or a spirit. If Jesus didn't share our humanity, then he couldn't act as our human representative before God. And so the whole gospel begins to un 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 unwind uh, from that point. And John saw this. He saw this, and he saw it as a stage for cancer to the, to the church, to the Christianity. If this, church, if this teaching took over, Game over. And so he, he takes it so seriously, he calls on Christians in verse 10 not to even offer hospitality or welcome to the false teachers. Now, this is controversial, isn't it? I, I wonder if this bit of the reading made you feel uncomfortable. 
Because at the face of it, it seems to contradict Jesus' uh, command to love, love your enemy in Matthew 5.44. But it's not loving to the individual or loving to the wider community to promote falsehood or to collaborate in the undermining of salvation. John's drastic measures here serve a little bit like uh, our Western sanctions against Russia do at the moment. It sends a strong message, no, no, stop. <laughs> so it sends a strong message, but also cuts off the practical support that may feed the spread of such falsehood. So it's similar in some way to that. John was so keen to nip this um, false teaching in the bud because it was so demonstrably wrong. It wasn't a matter of theological opinion to him. John was an apostle. He actually met Jesus. <laughs> this is the thing. He actually met Jesus. He could recall the day 50 years earlier when he was called to be a disciple. He said, John, follow me. And he did. He, he can recall that. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw him heal the sick. He saw him die on a cross. He ran with Peter to Jesus' vacant doom, tomb three days later. He saw him alive again. He ate breakfast with him on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. Teaching that Jesus wasn't a real human was ridiculous to John. He, he saw it all. When I was at school, I had the immense privilege of meeting David Scott. Not know who David Scott is? Next slide. David Scott was the commander of Apollo 15. Yeah, he drove on the, lunar, uh, on the moon in a lunar rover, very cool. And um, 50 years ago, he walked on the moon. And uh, he gave a, a big talk to my year group, and we're allowed to ask questions at the end. And some kid, Ollie, <laughs> asked him that question. What do you make of the theory that we never went to the moon? <laughs> my advice, don't ever ask an astronaut that question. <laughs> His response was priceless. He punched him in the face. Only kidding, he didn't. No. <laughs> His response was priceless. He just went, well... I'm pretty sure I was there. <laughs> so you can't argue with that, can you? Um, John gives a similar answer to his critics in the, in the preceding letter. He says, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our own eyes, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim. John was actually there when it all happened. Ultimately, the core truth of the gospel isn't an, just an opinion, an arbitrary opinion. It's based on the person of Jesus Christ and the historically, historically reliable witness of those who met him. This is the bedrock, solid granite bedrock that we stand on as Christians. Now, false teaching can come in two forms, peripheral and critical, core critical. Peripheral teaching is minor, and its impact on the gospel is, is fairly minimal. It's more of an in-house debate between Christians. So what's the correct view of predestination, Calvinism or Molinism? kind of thing. Or uh, was the earth created in six literal 24-hour days or over billions of years? Uh, Christians can hold differing views on, that, on such things and remain recognizably Christian. But critical teaching undermines the core. And next slide, please. Um, the core of the gospel has three essential elements. It's so simple, actually, you could probably write it on a post-it note. So the core of the gospel has three essential elements. The nature of man, beloved but fallen. The nature of God, loving, just, and holy, and revealed in Jesus Christ, and the nature of the relationship between God and man, namely, through God's grace achieved on the cross. So critical teaching undermines one or more of those three critical elements. And critical false teaching may also attack our ability to know those things by undermining uh, Jesus or the scriptures. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm sometimes tempted to think that, that our modern context just faces an unparalleled 
uh, attack by, by false teaching. And it's the first time that we've ever had to, to face this issue. I'm sometimes tempted to think that. But next slide, please. Um, false teaching is as old as the church itself. Now, this slide is just an overview. I'm not going to go through it in detail, but if you are interested in this thing, because it is quite interesting, um, do pause the, the slide on YouTube and, and look into it in your own time. Um, but what I've indicated there with those numbers is, is where each of those false teachings addressed each of the kind of core critical parts of the gospel. And in each case, it was nail-bitingly close sometimes whether the church would pull through, whether the gospel su would survive. But every time, sure enough, the gospel would face down every single one of these challenges. And the gospel continues to change the lives of billions of people to this day from every tribe and tongue. What I'm trying to say here is that John's call to walk in the truth against the backdrop of this, either hostile culture outside of the church or false teaching within it, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. We've been here before. We, in fact, we've never been anywhere else. <laughs> it has been a constant feature of our history since day one. We needn't be scared or disheartened or surprised. Many false teachings have preceded us, and the gospel has faced down every single one of them. So how then should we heed God's, uh, John's call to walk in the truth and reject false teaching? I think there's two errors we can fall into. Firstly, we can be too harsh. We can be too harsh. We can be so eager for truth that we end up treating everything as critical. We treat peripheral things as critical things. And this can lead to factionalism, it can lead to judgmentalism, it can lead to general obnoxiousness in the church. And, some, and such a church is often a miserable, unwelcoming, unwholesome, unloving place to be. It reminds me a little bit, I, I wonder if you've uh, seen the film Life of Brian? Anyone, anyone seen it? Absolutely brilliant, love Life of Brian. Um, and uh, the hapless protagonist, Brian, comes across a group of people called the People's Front of Judea. And they want to throw out the Romans, but they can't stop squabbling with other rebel groups, the Judean People's Front and the Judean Popular People's Front, among others. And they all have the same aim to overthrow the Romans, uh, but they're divided over minor conflicts. And later in the film, they're having an argument, and Brian implores them. He says, brothers, brothers, we must stop fighting amongst themselves and unite against the common enemy. And there's silence. And then one of them says, what, the Judean People's Front? <laughs> said, no, the Romans. <laughs> anyway, great film, great scene. Um, uh, and Paul says in Titus 3.9, he said, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Not everything is critical. In peripheral matters, we should be open and curious about positions we, we may not hold and honor those who hold them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the first error, uh, next slide please, if the first error is being too harsh, the second error is being too loose. Are we assisting the ministry of those who are teaching a false gospel where the nature of man, the nature of God, or the nature of salvation is not what Jesus and his eyewitnesses, the, the apostles, have taught? In our natural desire to be welcoming and inclusive, we need to beware of blindly capitulating to modern cultural mores and compromising on areas of truth which can directly harm the core message of the gospel. At the end of the day, number three, we need the Spirit's help. We need to pray for wisdom in how to walk in the truth in each context we find ourselves in, loving those with whom we strongly disagree on critical issues, but in our love, not allowing the precious truth of the gospel or vital scriptural Jesus-centered authority which that gospel is based on to be corroded. So let's sum it all up together. 
We need the Spirit's help to give us a fresh knowledge of how wide and long and high and deep is Jesus' love for us. We need that knowledge to be empowered to walk in love ourselves. We need to walk in the precious, precious truth of the gospel. We must receive it, guard it, defend it, persuade others of it, pass it on to a world and to future generations that so desperately need to hear it. And we need wisdom to discern how to preserve and unite around the core whilst allowing room and flexibility at the periphery. Let's pray. Lord, you have guided generations in walking in both love and truth for centuries preceding us. And we ask you to guide us still today. Amen. Thank you, Robbie. Let's just spend a moment.